It's time for Series 3 of Shooting the Breeze. As we continue our focus on women's basketball, we'll be talking to more of the amazing players in the WNBL, the coaches that inspire them, those people behind the scenes that do so much for the sport, as well as so many more from across the Australian women's basketball landscape and beyond. It's the 42nd WNBL season, the longest-running women's professional league in the country, and this year, 2022, Sydney will stage the FIBA Women's World Cup, featuring the 12 best women's teams on the planet, playing right here on our turf. There's so much to come in this season. Subscribe, like, and review our podcast so we can get more Hoops content to you. We want to welcome on board the Island Pacific Soap Company as our first commercial partner. They make high-quality, all-natural, handcrafted bath soap. Check them out online, and a big shout-out to Paul for all the support. It's about the stars of tomorrow who are going to have a better competition, who are going to have a better pathway into the tall ferns, who are going to have the chance to come home to see their family and friends and play the game that they love and continue the career that they want to have, to be paid appropriately, to actually be invested in. Joining us on this episode of Shooting the Breeze is Justin Nelson, formerly General Manager of the Melbourne Boomers and now Head of Commercial at Sky Sports New Zealand. He's been central to the establishment of a new women's competition, Tawihi Basketball Otearoa, that gives Kiwi talent a chance to play at home and contribute to the growth of the Tall Ferns program. Already attracting big-name stars back to play and coach in the competition, the excitement's building across New Zealand and internationally. Justin takes us on the journey, from his first encounters with the Kiwi Hoops landscape to the realisation of this revolutionary vision for the sport that's leading the way on player parity, financial stability and a solid broadcast partnership driven by a vision of fan inclusion. This podcast pulls back the curtains to provide great insight into a basketball nation that has its eyes firmly fixed on the future and giving the basketball community something to rally around. Welcome to Shooting the Breeze. Joining me and my co-host Jacinta Gavin today, it's Justin Nelson from Sky Sports in New Zealand, the Director of Commercial. Commercial. Yeah, somewhere up there. Somewhere up there. Head of Commercial, that's okay. Yeah, and a very long history in basketball and broadcast as well. Justin, it's great to have you on the show. Hey, thank you. Thanks to both of you for having me. It's it's nice to be here. I've been tuning into some other episodes from across the waters and um, yeah, you're doing a great job. So well done to you two. Thank you. Really appreciate awesome. it. Thanks so much. It's great. Let's start off with your time at the Boomers, the Melbourne Boomers, and obviously great result for the yeah. team. I understand you started with the team when they transitioned from being the Bulleen Boomers to the Melbourne Boomers, is that correct? Yeah, sort of, a little bit after that. Um, probably when that happened, I was working in V8 supercars. My, my background, amongst a whole heap of other sports, has been in broadcasting and commentary, and I've sort of wound back up in media land or TV land these days, but... I, I sort of came in not long after they'd gone through the rebrand. I think they'd been at it for one season, maybe. Yep. Uh, and I was approached by uh, Linda Perry, uh, God rest her soul. She, she's not with us now. And, and she was a really big part of that transformation. And Mark Laguduche, who uh, was then Carlton Football Club president, but a, a big bullying um, identity as well. And uh, yeah, look, they had a chat with me and said, would you be interested? I, I don't know what I was thinking at the time when I said yes, but uh, what what I've sort of been known for through my career is to pick up things that need a little bit of help. And um, it's become a little bit of a trademark. And uh, I saw this as a great opportunity to make a difference. I, I've been heavily coaching for years in Big V, especially around women's basketball, and um, really loved it. You know, really enjoyed and immersed myself in trying to promote and, and, and lift the game, the game in general, but really wanted to see, you know, women's basketball take that next step. Uh, so I threw myself into it. And gee, what a ride it was over five seasons. You know, I think when we started, we had average crowds of about, you know, 
250, 300. We, by the time I headed out, we were getting three and a half thousand. And I think we had a hundred members when I walked in the door. And, you know, by the time I exited, it was over 3000 as well. I think the thing that I really enjoyed the most though, over that period of time was, you know, we had about 90 associations and, and junior basketball clubs connected to us. For me, that was really satisfying. When you said that you uh, kind of like taking on a role uh, and find yourself in a position where, you know, the idea is to kind of like really boost, kind of boost like a club, for example, the Melbourne Boomers. Do you remember some of the areas that you first wanted to target to kind of give the club a better platform? I communicate, get money. Um, you know, I'm really big on on revenue, fan engagement and brand. I think everything revolves around those three things. That's the way I work. I focus on those three things, revenue, fan engagement and brand. So had to go out and get money, had to communicate and connect with the fans. And I had to build the brand. I mean, I know that they had changed and I really loved and, and respected, you know, the fact that they had put their hand up and gone through a change. The hardest thing about changing is actually accepting that you need to change, right? So they had started that process. What I really wanted to do was make the brand Melbourne's brand, you know, for all of basketball. And, you know, thankfully across those three areas, uh, we grew and we grew really quickly. However, I suppose the you know the big hurdle amongst that was one year in, Bulleen decided to hand the licence back. Uh, and that was really tough. You know, I remember sitting in the room with the players and the staff and letting them know that, you know, the license was being handed back. Guy Malloy and, and myself pledged that we would do all that we could uh, for, for, for not only the boomers to survive, but to thrive. And, you know, one of the one of the funny stories that Guy and I talk about quite openly today, and it's true, it's 100% true. You know, we sat there a day or two later and we compared our bank accounts and, you know, we said, hey, let's have a look at whether we can do this ourselves. That's how much we wanted to save this thing. That meeting lasted about 30 seconds. It was the first and last ever Guy Malloy, Justin Nelson board meeting of the uh, Melbourne Boomers. We realised we needed some help and we went out and we found some owners and we found some great owners and they have been central amongst all the other things and the volunteers and the people that we put around us and the ideas and the inventions and concepts and fans and all that, all of that, you know, led to a perfect mix of this whole thing being reborn and it's been great. You touched on something really interesting there in relation to communication. I don't think there's any secret in the fact that over the years, the WNBL hasn't necessarily been the best at communicating with the fans or the media. Did you ever find that when you were really pushing the boomers that you're actually seen as kind of dragging the WNBL along with that? Yeah, I think so. I think we had a really massive two or three years where, you know, there were some good operators at other teams that were doing the same thing. You know, Richard Goodbody at Townsville and myself, really good mates away from the game. I think we fed off each other a lot. You know, he's a really good operator as well. And it, it was a bit of a tide, you know. The the tide was rising and, and the boats were floating. And um, it, it was a nice period of time. But look, one of the biggest mistakes, and I'm a fan's first person. Fans are the most important people in sport. Players come yeah. and go, coaches come and go. Some players are stars, some players aren't stars. They come and go. If you get a fan, you've got the chance to have them rusted on for life. You've got a chance for them to pass on that fandom to their kids and their grandkids. The fans are the most important people in the game. If you haven't got the fans, close up shop, it's not going to work. I I think the big thing for me with the fans and what we did in the WNBL at that time, and maybe it was because a couple of us were pushing it, fans don't just turn up. Don't fall Mm. into the trap of thinking, hey, we're good, we've signed a good player, we've got a good brand, we've got a good home court. The fans will just turn up. They won't. You have to go out and work for it and communicate and connect and love them and show them and give them and include them, and then maybe they'll come in through that door. And when they do come in through that door, put on the best bloody show that you can. Let them enjoy every second of it because the game is only one part. It's a part, but it's one part. It's a car park to car park, driveway to driveway. Everything about them coming in, everything about them while they're there, everything about the journey home. And I think we did a pretty good job with that. Fan engagement has been quite a common theme in some of our past episodes, would you say, Paul? 
Yeah, definitely. Something we, that we naturally kind of come back to in, in lots of different episodes, different topics, and we understand like the importance. So the the what you just said, Justin, is like gospel to us. Yeah. Um, yeah. So what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned, good and bad, when you have been targeting fan engagement in, in your past jobs? Well, I think that it's a really good question. I think the big thing I did was I learned not to reinvent the wheel. You know, the Americans are the best. They're absolutely the best at engaging with fans when it comes to sport. You know, so what I did for the best part of 10 years, I went to America every year, two or three times a year, and I learned and I watched and I listened and I asked. I spent time with different organisations. You know, I, I weaved my way in there to meet the people and ask the questions. You know, I would go to an NBA game and for 10% of the time I'd watch the game. 90% of the time I'd walk around the stadium and I looked and I looked at where signage was and where activation was and what people were being drawn to, you know, what engaged them, what included them. People think it's just fan engagement. It's fan inclusion. Mm. Um, and then I think, you know, I, I tried to bring some of that back. The single biggest thing we did at the Boomers, the single biggest thing that became a mainstay and that grew that fandom into a really powerful sense of belonging is the players stayed on the court after the game and met the fans. And we made it look yeah. like a real privilege. We put the barriers up. We had every player with a line. It wasn't a case of just a free-for-all. People lined up. After the game, there'd be 12 lines across the middle of the court. It was a privilege to meet the players, and the players loved it. But more importantly... The fans went home knowing that they had lived out their dream. They had met their heroes. They had stories to tell. I think the other thing that we did is we made it a real point that the players said, thank you. Thanks for coming. Thanks for being here tonight. Please come back to our next game. We play next Saturday night. You know, I would as much as I as much as I possibly could within my role. You know, I'd quickly race out the front when the game finished and I'd stand at the front door and I'd say thank you to the fans for coming. The fact is every single fan that goes to a WNBL game largely exits through the same door. Yes. What a great chance to say thank you and look them in the eye and say come back and see us next Saturday night. That's the sort of stuff that I really focused on. Yeah, and I know when we spoke with uh, Kayla George, uh, in one of our earlier episodes, one of the things that she was saying that she really missed because of all the COVID protocols and the hub season is for two years, they haven't been able to engage with the fans, which means that's become ingrained in the Melbourne Boomers culture. Yeah, no doubt. And, you know, Kayla's one of the best at it. Um, <laughs> you know, God love her. It, just, it was great to see her last Saturday night. I'm, I'm, I'm so pleased for her. You know, I was there when we first brought her to the Boomers and, you know, she, she's just an absolute ripper. She's a superstar of the game and a superstar of the fans. But, yeah, I mean, that that sums it up perfectly. It does. It becomes a part of who those players are. That They learn to not only appreciate the fans, but they certainly learned that the fans are a big part of the game. Uh, and, I, and I love that because if you haven't got them, players don't want to play in front of empty stadiums. I mean, I know we've been through, you know, some troubled times, but it's been hard watching some WNBL games this past season. It's been really hard because mm. the players are stars. They want to play in front of full stadiums. It's been hard. Yeah, and I think, look... And I know I'm probably going to cop a belting from Paul Smith at some point when we talk to him next about this. But I think while it's great that both clubs are together under one ownership structure, the inability of being able to get the fans down onto the court at a location like Kudos Bank Arena to be able to engage with the players is probably taking a little bit away from one of the things that makes the WNBL special. And it's one of those things that somehow has to be addressed in that environment because I think if that can be done, it'll also help with engaging Kings fans with the Flames as well. I'd like to see every sport do it, men or women. I want to see players, and I understand there's you know there's you know safety and coordination, you know, get, get, putting it together and making. I get all of that, but if I'm a fan, I want to meet the player. Yeah, that's who I want to meet. That's who I look up to. That's my role model. That's who I love to see. That's who I'll buy a membership 
to see. I'll buy merchandise. I want to meet the players. I would love to see every sport work out a way in a safe environment for players to meet fans after a game. To me, that is absolute utopia. And even though, like you touched on, perhaps the logistics and organising and protocols around that might be difficult, but just based on what you've told us already, the attention to detail and the extra mile kind of stuff to make that happen, to have the fan engagement and, as you referred to it as, um, fan inclusion, it's almost like an investment in if you just put in that extra time to something as what looks like as small as having the fans meet the players at the end of the game, whether it's around COVID protocols or whether you have to leave the venue a certain time when the players have to get in the locker room, that sounds like that small moment is actually setting you up for a fan investment in the long term. It's the best investment that you can make. I mean, you know, why do banks target kids in school and give them saving books? I mean, we all came through school and it happened when <laughs> I was at school, it happened when you were at school. They do that because they try and get that person invested for life. A bank isn't going to make a million dollars out of a kid at 12 or 13 unless that kid's got a portfolio of 5 million NFTs these days. But <laughs> what they're trying to do is they're, they're trying to set that person up to be a lifelong banker and dedicated to that brand. Sport's no different. It's absolutely no different. Players are commodities. There's a lot of people in the world that don't like to hear that, but they are. They come and go. They change teams. Mm. They chase contracts. They make the best of their career while they can, and they should. Yes. But the fan is the person that you as a brand can be connected to for life, and that is powerful stuff. And I can tell you, the ins and outs of a Dolomite account, but I can't tell you the ins and outs of an NXT. <laughs> I'm sure the Commonwealth Bank will be happy for the plug. Well done. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder if anyone actually, oh, I think some of our older listeners might remember that. But oh, yeah, I'm yeah. sure they do. Got anyone from yeah. ComBank's listening? Yeah. We're happy to open ourselves <laughs> up for sponsorship. There you go. Now you're living in my world. There yeah. you go. There you go. I want to move on to, you know, mm. you built on that and you've created an amazing uh, organization with the help of the, the whole team. And then you went to New Zealand. And yeah. I, I actually remember reading when that happened, it was like, wow, you know, it's a big leap from, you know, Melbourne and the WNBL to go to New Zealand. And having done some research, I understand that you found a, I'll call it an interesting situation when you arrived. Yeah, it's it's one way to put it. Look, I um in my fifth season at the Boomers, I let the board know fairly early that I wasn't going to make a decision on the future until the end of the season. I I just I like to pick things up and fix them basically, and I sort of work to a plan of three to five years, and then I look for the next challenge. And that news somehow got to certain people, and all of a sudden I had a recruiter on the phone with regards to the job in New Zealand. And from that point forward, including a lot of testing, uh, including a flight in and out of Auckland that saw me uh, walk out of the international arrival, have a one-hour meeting, walk straight back through the international gate and jump on a plane (laughs) and come home, I signed that contract within six days uh, because I saw it as a challenge. I saw it as another opportunity to try and do something hopefully productive, hopefully successful for a game that I love. And I arrived in New Zealand and, uh, yeah, I was eight weeks out from the start of the season because I'd finished the Boomers season. I'd actually agreed to terms three months before the end of the WNBL season. So, But I, I stayed through the uh, WNBL season. Arrived in New Zealand eight weeks from tip-off and, wow, um, they didn't tell me everything. my first game I kid you not this is a true story my first game as soon as I arrived we completed a TV deal every game live on Sky Sport amazing first broadcast deal that they'd had in I don't know 20 years incredible so it was it was good to be a part of that and you need TV deals you need to be front and centre you need to be seen anyone who thinks that TV deals aren't a necessity to grow a national league you are kidding yourself you must be visual Yes. So I've got that deal across the line, put ourselves in a position. We already had some, you know, some great people around me. Basketball New Zealand, great organisation. Rolled up to the first game. It was the 
Manawatu Jets versus, at that time, the Super City Rangers, who were from Auckland. They've been kicked out of the competition now. Um, anyway, that's another story. Um, <laughs> rolled up to the game, and I was standing upstairs with my operations manager overlooking the court. Marie Taylor, one of the best ops managers going around in sport, brewing at her job. During the game, first game I've seen, uh, the coach of the Super City Rangers, uh, Jeff Green, who's wasn't allowed back in the competition after that year while I was in charge. I don't know if he'll ever get himself back in there again. But anyway, a lot of people know Jeff Green. During the game, he's standing nearly in the middle of the court as players are running around him. Referees are running around him. I kid you not, he is nearly in the middle of the court. What's even worse is in one hand he's handing, uh, holding a can of Coke. In the other hand, he's holding a chocolate bar. This is while the game's going on. He's the coach of one of the teams, live on television. Oh, That was my intro to the New Zealand National Basketball League. He copped three separate charges that night and pled guilty on all three. Oh, wow. That was my first game. I don't wow. know if that's what you were alluding to. That was my first just, game. No, just the stuff that I was reading. It was like, yeah. you know, you came into a league that was... The Wild West. Yeah, the Wild West. Yep. Um, that's what it was like. That must have been a real challenge trying to get a lid on that because I know in any type of... And it, let's face it, sports is a business, mm. right? In any type of business environment where there hasn't been that sort of leadership and, and level of control that's necessary... It's really hard to yeah. change the culture. Yeah, the day I walked in uh, to New Zealand, I'd, I'd already prepared a five-year strategy and I dropped that on the desk. Now, that subsequently changed because of COVID, but I dropped a five-year strategy on the desk. I'm not saying they hadn't had one in the past, but clearly it probably wasn't front and centre. The other thing that I tried to do was bring in really strong governance from day one. And after that first game, it was needed, trust me. <laughs> but... To be fair, and, you know, I take my hat off to Ian Potter, who was the CEO of Basketball New Zealand at the time. He's just stepped away from that role after nine years and Dylan Bouch is there now. And Dylan's doing a great job already. But to be fair, you know, whether it was by accident or by design or whether it was just really smart management, Ian went and got an Australian. And I think if it was a Kiwi that was coming in with strong governance, new strategic plan, <laughs> you know, almost like the sheriff, you know, the new sheriff yeah. to clean everything up, I'd don't know whether it would have had the same impact, but because it was someone that people could throw darts at, it worked. You know, all of a sudden, you know, there was a, a bold and brash Australian taking this thing in a different direction. And if you didn't like it, bad luck. But thankfully, over three years, as people started to see the change and the involvement, commercial increased tenfold, broadcast deal with ESPN, you know, every game live in the States. We had the first ever hub in the world during COVID. As people started to see these changes, it almost eased the fact that there was this outsider coming in and changing things. And it became people actually buying into the vision and starting to see it and live it and breathe it. And everyone started acting like a business. And the end result has been pretty good. It's like in my, well, I've been told through my, uh, kind of healthcare profession that culture change in any kind of setting you're expected to it's going to take 10 years but it sounds like in a fraction of the time you've already implemented some really serious changes down in New Zealand but I imagine that was probably met with some resistance as well so you know when you met with that resistance what were some of your strategies to kind of get uh, the people you needed on side to um, kind of buy into what you were selling? Yeah gee that's a good question too because you know, it's not always planned. You've got to really pivot and move. I think, you know, when you're in the leadership space, you've got to be you've got to be prepared to try and lead by example, lead by knowledge and vision. But one of the toughest parts is, you know, convincing people to take that journey with you. And when it comes to sport, there's a few things that really work if you get it right. If you have good media partners, you've got a backbone. You've got to look good. You've got to present yourself well. Your product has to be sharp, right? Because if it's not, they show up bad on TV as well. The team does. Mm. So it gives you some weight. It gives you some real backbone to say, hey, we're nationally on TV. We're in America. We're in the States. Every game, still to this day, every game in the States. You don't want to look like an idiot, right? So that stuff adds some weight. 
But the other thing that changes everything, and it, it comes with its own set of new problems, but gee, it solves a lot of other problems. And I guess if there's one thing I've been able to do well, if I can say that, you know, I think about the boomers, I think about the NZNBL, I think about, you know, the new Tahiti League, I think about what we're doing at Sky. Now, the one thing I think that I've been able to, you know, tick the box more often than not is go and get money, go and get people to invest in the vision, go and get people to believe in where we're taking this thing. And the thing that really changed in the Cells NBL is we went and got dollars. You know, we worked our backsides off to go and get dollars. And if you Mm. bring money in and you've got a great TV partner, people start to believe. And that's what happened. People need to see that. You can't just talk about it. You can't just say, oh, yeah, what if we get TV? Imagine what we could do. And we need commercial support. Working in sport isn't hard. I don't take it as hard and I won't listen to anyone who says it's hard. It's not hard. We're not solving, you know, Ukraine and Russia diplomacy. We're not saving people's lives on the operating table. It's not hard. It's hard work. Mm. And there's a difference. There's a massive difference between something that's hard and something that's hard work. Sport, especially basketball, especially you know, New Zealand NBL as it was at the time, especially the WNBL, the booms, it's hard work. And I'm guessing that, you know, in New Zealand particularly, because it's such a heavily rugby-oriented country, Yeah, you know, even though basketball is popular, getting it over that hurdle must have had some really interesting challenges. Yeah, no doubt about that because, you know, the media will cover a rugby player sneezing, blowing their nose (laughs) ahead of, uh, you know, a one-point grand final thriller in just about every other sport. That's the landscape. And, you know, it's it's a proud rugby nation, proud, you know, and I love that stuff because it's about the fans. Yeah. So you have to find your niche. You have to find your position. You have to find your post where people can indulge in your sport, can be entertained, can enjoy, can be included. But don't take away from the other stuff. We're not battling rugby. We're battling people's leisure time. So when the basketball's on, I want you to come and see a game rather than go to the beach. I want Mm. you to come to a boomers game instead of go to a family picnic, instead of going to the movies, instead of going to the shopping centre. It's about leisure time. And we all compete in that leisure time, in that space. So it's about finding your place. And that's the way it's been in New Zealand as well. We can coexist. Rugby is going to be rugby. It's not going to change. Don't try and change it. Don't try and beat it. Try and be complimentary to it. Try and be there, you know, for the fan and what they want. Sometimes they don't want to go to rugby. Sometimes they don't want to watch rugby. Sometimes they want to go to the basketball. So be there and be the best that you possibly can for that product. And based off what you learnt from the Sal's NBL, Mm. you've basically revolutionised women's basketball in New Zealand with an upcoming season that's pretty much tipped the whole thing on its head. How much of what you learnt from the men's league went into the women's league? Yeah, a fair bit of it. But at the same time, I mean, those that know my background, you know, I I coached more than 350 games in the Big V. And most of that, bar a couple of years at McKinnon with the the men, it was women. Um, I don't talk about athletes as female athletes and male athletes lauren jackson who i had come in after her career and worked with me at the boomers she taught me a lot of a lot of lessons and one thing i don't do is i don't talk about female athletes because i don't i don't call them male athletes they're all athletes and they play a women's sport women's basketball or men's basketball but they're all athletes so i i I really learned a lot along that journey and took that into, you know, what is going to be a fantastic competition over here? We're not trying to emulate the Cells NBL. We're trying to be mm. the Toihi Basketball Aotearoa for all of the athletes that play in that competition. It's their competition. We're not trying to be the same as somebody else. Do we learn from other competitions? Of course we do. Mm. But the big thing that was needed was change. And, you know, again... 100% true story, 
in 2020, we had the Cells NBL showdown, which in terribly tough times became revolutionary for that game. First hub anywhere in the world. At one stage, you know, I had teams against me. Three teams didn't even play. They said we were, well, they didn't say we were crazy, but I think they thought we were crazy. But seven teams <laughs> did play. And it became a just a launching pad for the Selves NBL. It was great. You know, ESPN came on board. Obviously, Sky were there. Became a really competitive. Yeah, you know, we were playing two games every night. The nation got better. We had a player draft. You know, I took this concept with, with a couple of other people around a player draft, and the nation fell in love with it. It was New Zealand's own version of the NBA, and it catapulted the game. But, of course, we came out of that, and then we turned our attention to the Women's League. And the Women's League traditionally had been amateur and had been a series of tournaments, basically. I came up with this concept of the 18 in 18, 18 games in 18 nights. And that's what we took to TV and that's what we took to the six then teams. Remember the six teams were owned by associations. Mm. And that's a really pivotal part in this whole journey because I'd come out of a system in Australia where every NBL and WNBL team, including my time at the Boomers, was getting away from associations. It was the worst ownership model that you could have because we were bleeding associations dry, which meant we were bleeding junior basketball dry. It was bad stuff. So the 18 in 18, on night two at half time, I walked away from the court. I got on the phone. I don't know if anyone knows this story. This is, this is factual. This is what happened. I got on the phone at half time in game two. I called Ian Potter and I said to Ian, this competition's not going to cut it. This isn't going to get us money. This isn't going to get us commercial dollars. This isn't going to get us really good television. And this isn't going to underpin the tall ferns to the level that we want. We need Mm. our players to come home. We need international stars to come here and play. That's when it started. It took me two years to get the concept across the line. But thankfully, we're there. And the hardest part in all of that was going to those six teams and saying, I'm sorry, but you're no longer in the competition. That was the hardest part because that's history. That's their involvement. That's their position. That's their brand. That's their fans. That's their players. But I think now everyone sits back and acknowledges in some part, small or large, that it was the right decision because we've got a brand new league. We've got a great TV deal. We've got fantastic sponsors. We've got pay parity, which was a massive part of the concept. That was a centerpiece in the concept. We've got five new brands. We've got fantastic connection with our Māori heritage through our brands and through our people. We've got Kiwi players coming home to play. Mm. We've got international stars that are about to be announced. We've got WNBA drafted players coming to play. I mean, it is an amazing opportunity for Kiwi basketball, and that's how the journey started. Huge, huge. Yes. You touched on the the teams that were told, hey, look, I'm sorry, but you Mm. can't, you're not in. How did the fans react to that news when it broke? So this is a hard reality. And I guess I'm best positioned to to put the reality across the table, even though people might not like hearing it. I don't know that there was that many fans because I don't know that we were servicing them with the best possible product. And that's no disrespect to those teams and that's no disrespect to the players that had played in the league. But it wasn't going in the direction that we needed it to go. And I think now most people would sit back and say that this thing is now going in the direction that it needs to go for the benefit of girls and women playing the game, for the benefit of our tall fern stars who never got to come home and play, who couldn't earn a living, for the chance for future players to actually earn some money, some good money to do what they love, to use it as a stepping stone in their career, for our brands to be in the newspapers, our players to be interviewed on television and radio, broadcast, live games, all of those things, things that fans connect to. 
I don't know that they were there. That's the harsh reality and that's why we needed to change. It's kind of like the gamble of do we just scrap it and start again and kind of cut the small losses that we have to make something better. Mm. Yeah, and that's, look, change is really hard because we're attached to history. We're attached to names and colours and that's who I played for and, you know, that's where I work or that's what I'm invested in. And I get all of that. I mean, I'm a blood. I'm a South Melbourne supporter who saw my team move to Sydney and I stuck with them through thick and thin. Is change hard? Of course it's hard. But if you've got good leadership, you've got good concepts, good strategy, good Mm -hmm. implementation, good marketing, good people, if you align the stars with all these good things, it can be better. And I think that the thing that I remember the most about that phone call at halftime in game two of the 18 in 18 is we weren't servicing the fans with a product that could be at its absolute best and we had to change. And here we are. And it's been pretty significant change. I mean, you touched on the structure of team ownership, Mm. the payment systems as well, the future development of the tall ferns, all of that's rolled in. It's like it's effectively bringing in a short, medium, long-term plan that builds upon itself to be able to take New Zealand basketball into the future. Yeah, and that's what it's all about. It's about the future. It's about the stars of tomorrow who are going to have a better competition, who are going to have a better pathway into the tall ferns, who are going to have the chance to come home to see their family and friends and play the game that they love and continue the career that they want to have, to be paid appropriately, to actually be invested in. I mean, lo and behold, it should have been happening 20 years ago, but we're here today. And look, as far as the concept and the model and the way that we've shaped it around media and television and timing, look, if if I could do it with the WNBL today, I'd do it with the WNBL. The WNBL needs to change. The WNBL, you know, New Zealand's a smaller cousin, but what I would say to people in the WNBL is learn and look at what we've just done. I know you're a different competition. I know you're bigger and I know there's more money and I know there's better players. I get it. But they're still fans. Fans are still fans. They're still the same people. It can be better. It can change. You just need to be willing to step up to the plate and go in a new direction. And the model that we've got in New Zealand, albeit on a different scale in Australia and more money needed and up against different levels of competition, it can work. It can take it in a significantly better, bigger, bolder, brighter direction. And the WNBL fans are, are still here and still fiercely loyal, but we're, we're wavering. We're wavering because that's the changes that we want. We want it to be a league that is uh, as appreciated by the fans as it is by the administration, but it needs to be led by the administration rather than led by the fans getting angry on Twitter. You will not change until you accept that you need to change. And the reality is the WNBL, um, I was going to say I'll choose my words carefully, but look, the, the competition, I saw those players on Saturday night from the Boomers and the Lynx, amazing athletes, just incredible. Mm. Yeah. You know, you go and stand next to, to Ezzy. I love Ezzy. You know, you go and stand next to Ezzy, incredible athlete powerful, strong, big presence, just a wonderful human being. And they're all like that. It is a great competitive player-driven product, but it is absolutely letting the fans down. The reality is, if you think about the reality that I summed up before with New Zealand and, and where I got to in my mind back on that one night with that one phone call, the reality is, Are the fans really there? I would argue that they're not. I would argue that it's not a good product for the fans. It's great players for the fans, fantastic players for the fans. We're letting the players down. We're letting the fans down. It's as simple as that. We're letting the media down. Everyone says to me, oh, the media doesn't follow the WNBL. doesn't mean they don't want to. Have you ever asked them if they want? Do you not follow the WNBL because you don't want to? Of course they want to follow great products. They want to follow great competitions, great stories, heroes, 
Full stadiums, colour, noise. Of course the media wants to follow that. That's their job. But maybe they're not following it because it's just not there. Maybe it's just not good enough. I don't know. I've got my views. Other people have got their views. I think we're letting the fans down. Yeah. um, One of the things that that I think is lacking is a clear vision from BA, WNBL, whichever organisation, because they're fundamentally the same. It's a clear vision that can be given to the fans, given to the media, given to everybody that says, here's what we want to achieve. Here's when we want to achieve it by. We want you to join us on this journey. Mm -hmm. Without a clear vision like that, as in any business, if you don't have a clear vision, you don't get everybody working together to achieve that. Yep. And I think that's one of the key initial steps that's missing. And I think one of the other issues that over the years has probably occurred because it happens in every other business is, okay, we need to get a consultant in to give us an idea and it'll be the flavor of the month. You go down this road and then after a while, it's not quite working. So you go bring another round of consultants in who come up with whatever's the flavor of the month at that point. And whether it be for media or for generating revenue or for investment or whatever it may be, it's like, unless you've got a vision that you can enunciate clearly to everybody so that they can get behind you and support you, going out and spending money on, you know, high-priced consultants, you'll get something for it, but is it going to get you to your end goal? There's three things you need, three, and that's it. And I can tell you now, it doesn't matter if it's WNBL or any other competition that needs, doesn't NZNBL, right? You look at where that was. So you need three things. If you can accomplish these three things, it will improve. It will change. The first one is you need to accept that change is needed because if you cannot sit there and put your hand up, it doesn't matter what you try and do, what you think you need, you are always going to revert back to the six most expensive words in business. What are they? We've always done it that way, right? That's the way we've always done it. They're the most expensive words in business. I think it's six. You can count later when you listen to it back. But anyway, so you, you, you need to accept that change is needed and everyone needs to accept that. And anyone who doesn't accept it, you need to say thank you, but goodbye. That's what you need to move into the next phase or move into a new path, a new journey, a new vision. You need to accept that change is needed. One of the industries that is changing across the world more than ever before right now is sport. Sport's one of the most biggest revolutionary, evolutionary industries to be in globally right now. It's an amazing time to be in sport. But if you're not willing to change, close the doors. It's all over. You're going to get left behind. So you need to accept change. That's the first thing. The second thing is you've got to invest. You either have to invest or find people to invest. You need money. You need to go out there and you need to work hard. Remember, it's not hard. It's hard work. You need money. And the third thing is you need the best people with the right skill sets. To your point, don't go and get somebody to work for you for three months and tell you how to fix it. Go and get the people who can fix it. Yeah. That's what you need to invest in. Can't turn up with a chocolate bar and a can of drink in there. (laughs) (laughs) That's a very good point. You get those three things, you're on the path. Okay, so let me ask you a question because this is one that kind of interests me a lot. Mm. At the moment, the flavor of the month in sport is go get private equity to go and buy a chunk of your sport. Yep. Right, which then becomes their asset which they can deal with as and how they see fit. Is that the best sort of model to be chasing or is the model better to be retain your sport, retain control of your sport and find long-term commercial partners and I mean partner rather than sponsor, that you can work with to develop your league? Understand that if you haven't got sustainable and healthy teams, you are going to continue to have struggles. A lot of people put an emphasis on the importance of, you know, player payments. And player payments are really important, right? Same as the job that you do, the job that I do. I mean, we, we work for a living. Athletes are no different. They're working their backsides off. But sometimes we focus on all of those things, you know, the player payments and the glitz and the glamour and 
you know, the travel and all of the things that cost money. And they're all important. They all have a place. But don't lose sight of the fact that if you haven't got healthy, sustainable teams, healthy, sustainable clubs, it's all going to fall over. So when you talk about investment, yep, you can raise money. You can go out there and look for investors and look for sponsors. But the first thing is strategy and governance. How are you going to help the teams be healthy and sustainable through great governance, through a strategic plan that may change the way in which you run the competition? It may take it to a different time of the year. You may tweak one or two rules to make it more engaging with fans. You may change your player payment structure. How are you going to get your teams to be healthy and sustainable? Once you've got that, all of a sudden teams start investing in resources. The number one thing that people miss in sport, the importance of resources. You need to invest in people. It's not about winning championships all the time. It's about developing and building a great structurally healthy and sustainable business. Winning the championship is the cream on top. So you've got to get those things right. And then once you've got a healthy and sustainable environment, it grows quickly. People invest quickly. Those outside equity partners are more likely to invest in something that is healthy and sustainable. If it's a bad product and it's losing money and it's not seen and teams are falling out and going under and losing money and players aren't being paid and there's just turmoil after turmoil, who's going to invest in that? You can beg, borrow and steal all you like, but investors are smarter than that. So get back to the fabric of building the business. Get that right and people will invest. Mm. It's really interesting because, as I said, you know, everybody seems to have this desire to go and find somebody who's going to throw a bucket of money at us. We'll sell them a percentage of the sport and everything's good. Or, Or let's go and recruit a superstar and pay them money that we haven't got and all these fans are going to turn up. No, they're not. Right. And that's kind of where I see it because if I go and look at Formula One, at one point they were, they were doing great. Then they had uh, CVC Capital Partners come in, mm-hmm. buy whatever percentage they did. And there was a truckload of money being made from new events and all yeah. that, but it wasn't flowing into the sport because private equity mm-hmm. wants, a wants a return on equity. Right. right. So if they're, they're offering their investors 10%, they want 15% because they want to cut as well. And all of a sudden that eats into your ability to be able to generate and grow your sport. Of course. And that's why I think the approach of building a business, as you said, makes a hell of a lot more sense, particularly if you're not a, you know, all blacks or an NRL or an AFL. It's a completely different financial equation. And don't think for one minute that those sports don't have their own issues and own sense of problems. They just have it on another scale, right? (laughs) That's what happens. But, you know, I look at the Cells NBL. When I came to New Zealand in in 2019, everyone was chasing championships. Everyone was competing for or overpaying players, coaches, whatever. They were all competing and some couldn't, some couldn't. And the disparity between the highest and the lowest was like 250% financially. Like it was ridiculous. It was a two-speed league. You know, I came out in the media within weeks and said, this is a horrible competition. This is a two-speed league. The thing that every fan wants and deserves from a sporting competition, doesn't matter if it's the AFL, doesn't matter if it's the WNBL, doesn't matter if it's your local league. Every single fan deserves to be able to turn the TV on or walk into an arena and genuinely believe their team has a chance to win that game. That is a great sporting competition. I don't care what it is, where it is, how big it is, how small it is, that is the best feeling as a fan and that is the best type of competition that you can deliver. So I think about the early days of the Cells NBL and it was all about winning championships or surviving. That's it. It was one or the other. We aim to win a championship or we're only here to try and survive. And in three years, through strategy, vision, concept, change, investment, growing commerciality, TV, ESPN, all of those things, you go and ask those teams today, 
what's the most important thing to them and they'll tell you it's their business. What a change. Three years. That's all it took. They are now totally focused on, do they want to win? Of course they want to win. Do they want a championship? Of course they do. But the number one thing they now want is a healthy and sustainable business. Because if they get that right, the other stuff will come. It sounded like very extreme, but uh, realistic in a sense that that's definitely how a lot of clubs at different levels operate, those extremes of chasing championships, chasing Mm. big signings, and they think that equals fan base and dollar signs without doing the real kind of foundation work of building the club and building the business, as you were talking about before. And so taking those lessons from the South National League into creating this new women's league, what were the conversations like initially creating this women's league of this is the standard that we are aiming for, this is the culture we're aiming for, this is the, you know, the way we're going to operate? How did those conversations start? What did it look like? I think it was one of excitement. You know, for, for me, it was, it was really exciting because once you get over the hump of the bad news of, hey, we're changing, once you get over the hump of the bad news and then you start laying out the vision and the design and the communication and the brands and the colour and the schedule and the TV and the ads and all that, it becomes one of excitement. It's genuine excitement that there's progress and there's change. And, of course, the centre part to that, which was central to the concept. I mean, it was, you know, I started this journey on building the concept and then others, you know, came in and and really helped and, you know, we had a great team of people. The central part was the importance of pay parity. I mean, that that is just so important because, you know, I've been around women's sport for the best part of two decades, you know, whether it's, you know, working in the office with LJ at the Boomers or, you know, Kayla and, you know, I, I was there when Ezzy signed her first pro contract and Monique Conti and you see the stars in their eyes as 16 and 17-year-olds. Anyone who thinks they don't work hard as opposed to a, a, an athlete in a men's sport, you're kidding yourself. They are unbelievable, unbelievable workers, unbelievable ambassadors. The way that they present in the community and to partners and to the media, and talk on TV, and wear the brand. Don't turn up with a hoodie on and a beanie on. and Unbelievable. And the unfortunate thing is, and we're all guilty by association, absolutely guilty by association, they then have to go and work a full-time job. Yeah, I think that's where people... People don't understand it's not the pay parity thing isn't just a gender equality point, like making a point of gender equality. It's making a point of saying, listen, these people are professional athletes just as much as anyone else. However, their time is divided between having to work, you know, full-time, part-time jobs to supplement that income, which means that their ability to, you know, work on their fitness, their mobility, their skills to make them an even better athlete is restricted. So well if you're gonna talk about equality, talk yeah. about equality in twenty-four hours of the life of somebody. Don't talk about equality for two hours on the basketball court. Talk about it in every being able to be in the gym for two or three hours a day, being able to, you know, have the same uh, facilities for education and reviewing games and you know rehab and hot and cold pools and everything. It's about everything. It's not about one simple thing. But the pay parity was definitely central to showing everybody that, hey, we can go in a better direction. And then how did you uh, go ahead and determine the five regions that you were going to target? And also I wanted to know, this is probably a bit of a niche question, but the graphic design for the new five clubs that we've been seeing as a drip feed online and some of the clubs have already announced players and huge coaches like Tully Beffelman. I didn't even know Tully had an interest in coming back and coaching, but you've got to, and that in itself is exciting. But, yeah, even the level of the way these new clubs are presenting themselves online with the drip feeds, with the high quality of graphic design, is that something as well? 
that was part of the early planning process because I'm just the graphic design alone. Yeah. I am already wanting to buy like T-shirts of these clubs that I don't even know where they're based or who's playing or who's approaching. The graphics alone, I was like, this is hot. Great. I love it. Part of. I love it. Look, the smartest thing I did was um, tried to sell a vision and, and put a concept behind it. And then I exited the room <laughs> and moved to Sky. So, you know, look, there's other people that have come in since then and just done a brilliant job, you know, with the whole creativity. We went and got professionals to do it. I mean, that's the other thing. We spoke about it before. Invest in skill sets. Invest in people who are going to carry through the job, not just come and tell you how to do it and then exit the building. They're going to do it. And that's what's been done, you know. And the new people that have gone in there, Hugh Bainan's come in and filled my role Good young guy, learning his way but doing good things. You know, Marie Taylor's still there. 81 came in from a design perspective. Dylan Boucher, Maria Vitovic, just great people behind the scenes. But the key thing is new investors came in, new owners came in, people from the business world came in, and they took an investment in these new five franchises. Sky Sport jumped in, massively jumped into support. That brings with it, the weight of so much experience. And what happens is the bar raises. And as soon as the bar starts to raise, I'll tell you right now in the world of sport, when the bar raises, you sure as hell don't want to be the one that's left behind because you'll very quickly get found out. And that's what's happened. Everything looks great. They're all learning off each other straight away. And we've got a good product. And we haven't played one game. Yeah. Everyone's talking yeah. about it and we have not played one game. How great is that? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, Dylan Boucher, is he a play was he a form player? Is that why I know the name? Why do I know the name? I won't tell him you asked that question. Oh look, Dylan, Dylan's a, a legend of New Zealand basketball. Over a hundred games for the Tall Blacks. NBL, Australian NBL basketball, even in the New Zealand NBL, I think he played 23 years or something. It's a bit of a going joke how many games. In... So, yeah, he is a legend of the game, but I'm sure he won't listen to that part of the podcast. <laughs> I'll, just, I'll just tell him that, you know, maybe that part of my um, my history is a little bit rusty, rusty. In brain, that part of history. But yeah. I, I only make the point because... I see a lot of, you know, local clubs and mm. uh, I guess professional clubs kind of struggling and taking yeah. points from what you've already mentioned. It just sounds like, you know, that the people involved in the club and running the clubs who are the basketball people who started as players or coaches, whatever, and have gone into admin, it sounds like that they can only take it so far. You have to get the experts and the people, yeah. like you said, with the skill set in business to take your club to that next level. You do. I mean, there's people who are professional carpenters, you know. You get them to build your house. You don't go and get a painter. You, you don't go and get the local garbo to come and build your house. And it's no different. We're in a business. Go and get the people with the skill sets because they know what they're doing. They've got a track record and they'll come in and they'll get the job done for you. That's what it's about. Look, the five brands, and I love the five brands. I think it's fantastic. One of the, the things that I wanted to do as soon as I exited the, the NBL chair where I didn't have a conflict anymore is I wanted to invest in the league. It wasn't just one thing to, to help bring this thing together. I wanted to invest in it. So, you know, I've gone and done that with some great people at the Tokamanoa Queens based in Wellington. You know, I'm one of the part owners there and we've got some amazing people involved already. I mean, Megan Compain is the only ever Kiwi to play in the WNBA. We all talk about Stephen Adams. Why the hell don't we talk enough about Megan Compain? You know, she's the only Kiwi ever in the WNBA, and I get to be a part owner of a team beside her. I feel like the luckiest person in the world. It's a privilege. It's an absolute privilege to share an interest with such an amazing athlete with an incredible story. I mean, we're surrounded by these people in this new league. Tali Bevilacqua, you talked about her. It's just an incredible opportunity. I'm looking forward to it so much. And I... I got to say, I think that overall, the reaction from the fans, mm. if I'm looking at, like, based off Twitter, based off the reaction to Tully being announced as the coach, she's already a legend in Christchurch. Yeah. yeah. yeah it's like, if they didn't know who she was before, they yeah. sure as hell know who she is now. The Poakai had her on billboards, digital billboards around yeah. the city. How good's that? Yeah. I, I saw those billboards. I thought, that's that's awesome. That is 
that's a really great way to start building that engagement yeah. and getting the fans excited. Yeah. And I think that's probably, if there's anything that's, that's key to all of this, is the excitement level that you build in the fans. That also means that when the product actually hits the floor, it's got to meet that expectation. Yeah, it does. Yep. It's a really good point that you make. You can build it up as much as you want, but you've got to deliver the goods, right? You've got to, you've got to walk the talk. <laughs> and look, there's some massive announcements coming up with players. So on his internationals, I can't give too much away, but um, what I can say is there's some incredible athletes coming to New Zealand. And the design of the competition, you know, you go all the way, you play 14 games in eight weeks. It's got a really solid window, and then it leads on to Tall Ferns International Duties, which is nice. That's about a three-month window all up. But what a great place. If you're an international player, what a fantastic country to go and ploy your trade, get paid good money for a couple of months in between going on and playing in other competitions. New Zealand, and I can say this as an Aussie having lived there for three years, it's a bloody beautiful country. Fantastic place. Yeah, I, I, having been there, I can't argue with you. It's just an amazing place. But it's also, I think one of the things that's going to be really interesting, and I think, Jacinta, you'd probably agree with me on this, is that, Australia and New Zealand are easy countries mm. for players from America to be able to come to and just walk into life as usual. You don't have the language barriers. You don't have all the other barriers that get in the way in, in Europe and Eastern Europe and other parts of the world. It's just like being at home but different. Oh, and by and large, we're nice people. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, it helps. And we've, again, the ANBL, and I apologise calling it the ANBL. I've got to separate it depending on which country I'm in and who I'm talking to. But, and the WNBL, again, the, the players that are on the floor in those competitions. And now, you know, the Sales NBL, we've seen there's 20 players in the Australian NBL in this season just gone or, or being played at the moment that have come through the Selves NBL. The Selves NBL, as a single competition, delivers more players into the Australian NBL than any other single competition in the world. In the world. Wowzers. That's how many come through that single competition. I mean, I know the the NBL 1 are all different state leagues, right? The, The single competition, the most. We've got some unbelievable players in this part of the world, in Australia and New Zealand. It's a great place to come and play basketball. And, you know, the one thing that I hope, and we've talked about it through the last hour, the one thing that I hope for basketball in New Zealand and Australia is I just hope we continue to work on change, adaptability, vision, and business. Get those things right. Because there's so many people playing this game at grassroots level. They all have aspirations. They all want to dream big. They all want to go and see the stars and rub the shoulders with them and and listen to the heroes and hear the stories. And the media will get behind basketball. But we've got to do the best that we can do first. Stop accepting mediocrity. If you accept mediocrity, all you're going to be seen as is being mediocre. There's no difference. If you accept mediocrity, you're going to be viewed as being mediocre. And thankfully, we're starting to see some improvements. The Australian NBL, man, it's a great competition. The Sells NBL, heading in the right direction. Toihi had to change. I hope it's a great product going forward that everyone can love. The WNBL, I've got my fingers crossed. I really have. I want to see that thing thrive. I want to see it survive. I want to see it thrive. Well, we were actually really excited when we heard about it the first time when we were talking with uh, Bevan Murray. Yeah. The reason for wanting to follow on with this is because I think having a strong competition in New Zealand is actually going to help competition here in Australia as well. Yeah. And there's a lot of lessons to be learned. I think the model, from a business point of view, I think the model is fantastic. I'm really excited to see how it all pans out. Got to work out the dates because maybe we can fit in a, a trip to New Zealand. There in you all go. Of this. Tourism's tourism's already loving us in New Zealand. Yeah. I like that you. <laughs> we're paying our way. Yeah, now look, it's it is good, and we're blessed with the game just being so big in both countries. And we've got you know we've got to build on that. We're not going to be the AFL. We're not going to be Super Rugby. We're going to be basketball. That's us. Live your space, own your space, love your space, and make your space bloody good. Make it great. 
make it the best that it can be. Because I tell you who's going to benefit from it the most? The fans. The fans will love it. The players obviously will love it, but the fans, and they will keep coming back again and again and again. Utopia, that's what it is. I don't think you'll get any arguments from us on this one. Nope. <laughs> well, listen, if you need some commentators over there. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it's funny you should say that. Yeah. Um, but uh, when I roll back into – I'm in Australia at the moment, as chance would have it. As you know, I was at the WNBL Grand Final. and yep. um, Yeah. And uh, very lucky. And I, I roll back into New Zealand in the next few days. I've got about a week and a half at home. And then we've got 128 games to broadcast on Sky across the Cells NBL and Toihi uh, in four months. 128 wow. games. So as much as I uh, sit behind the desk as head of commercial, I also still get on the microphone and, and commentate. So, yeah. Watch this space. There may be some work coming up for you before you know it. Trust me. There's a lot of basketball coming our way on that side of the ditch. Look, all I'll say is that I've got plenty of annual leave. Um, <laughs> I need a break from my current nine to five, and I like nice. I like basketball. So look, I'm, I'm, I think I'm officially the only Aussie voice at Sky. So I could do with some partners. <laughs> believe me, I could do with it. You know, last year. You, you'll get to learn I love talking about stories. But last year during a, a game I was commentating, it might have been with Dylan Boucher at the time. It was either Dylan or, you know, a, a past Kiwi great. And uh, a part in the play I've gone, oh, you know, he just showed great G&D. And the commentator beside me is like, G&D, what, what are you talking about? I've gone guts and determination. Don't you use that here in New Zealand? <laughs> Completely lost on them. Completely lost on them. I need somebody that understands G and D. So yeah, very good. Us uh, trying to abbreviate everything as well. And everything with an O on the end. Yeah, it's actually it's everyone I meet over there. You know, Steve is Stevo and. John is Jono and, you know, Mike is Mikey and yeah. uh, it is definitely an Aussie thing. They're not quite up with that sort of stuff. So, yeah, I love my Kiwi brothers and sisters, um, but there are some funny moments as we do translate for each other. Okay. Look, Justin, I really want to thank you so much for your time. It's been great. Hey, we definitely pleasure. want to – we really want to check in again on this. I'm really excited about what's been put together. I can't wait to see – the action on the floor can't wait to hear about the new announcements on players can't wait to see how the teams are revving up their fan base as well it's exciting and it's a really fantastic competition thanks so much for your time hey my pleasure um always get a plug in Toihi starts on june 29 sells nbl starts on april 28 and for both of those competitions watch this space um, obviously, we've got great, great partners in Sky Sport in New Zealand and, and ESPN in the States, but we are very close to making an announcement that we'll see every game available in Australia. So watch this space. Awesome. That's fantastic. Hey, thanks for having me. Keep up the great work. We need more people like your good selves out there talking and promoting and asking the questions. I mean, I think that's really important. Ask the questions. We don't want people... Um, that aren't prepared to ask the tough questions. And more importantly, we don't want people in this game who aren't prepared to answer the tough questions. So keep up the great work. Really um, re- have really enjoyed having a chat with you today. Great. Thanks awesome. very much. Thanks so much. Shooting the Breeze can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. Don't forget to subscribe and share the podcast with all your friends.